Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. Gang, we're, we're going through the Gospel of Luke here. And um, uh, we've kind of just making our way through it. And today we find ourselves at a uh, probably one of the sections that, as believers, we know much about or we've heard often, and yet uh, there's some discussion as to this text. Uh, I say discussion, theologians, a bunch of guys in the dorm room probably debating uh, where it belongs. You've heard of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's mostly known from Matthew chapter 5, and we'll take a glance at that uh, as we study. But this one is often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. And that's not one that flies. This is the, a nice level area on the side of a mountain. And the talk is, well, is this the same message as Matthew refers to as the Sermon of the Mount? Or is this a different message? Well, you know, some liberal professors may want to seize this as an opportunity to try and make arguments uh, to me, it's not a big deal uh, whether it's the same sermon or not. I, you know, I'm thankful that the Duprees are here. This is Dustin's family and friends are here. And, and you know what? They, they don't know this necessarily, but uh, I preached a sermon here one time, and then I went to their church and preached the same sermon. Now, if someone were taking notes they would have found that I said some things here that I didn't say there. And I said some things there that I didn't say here. But the heart of the message was the same. And whether you think the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain are two separate messages, or whether the same message doesn't really matter to me, because Jesus was an itinerant preacher, by the way. And, uh, you know, evangelists, they get joked at sometimes. They have ten suits and ten sermons. And they travel around the world and they do the ten sermons and wear their ten suits. So, again, don't get hung up on these kind of details. And I preface this this morning as we get ready to study it. And you can dig it out. You can study it out. Come to your own conclusions. I want you to study it. I want you to try to determine, is this really the Sermon on the Mount or is the Sermon on the Plain a separate one? Because you know what? If you're doing that, at least you're getting into the Word of God. So, with that said, we look at this text today and I need to give you a little bit of background because we left you last time where Jesus had gone to the mountaintop and He had gotten alone to pray. And I've heard back from your small group discussions and I've heard you had some really good time in discussing this text and I heard you had some really good time in prayer. That thrills your pastor's heart. Because that tells me you're not just hearing the Word of God, you're heeding the Word of God. That's why we're here, folks, to be equipped to do work of the ministry, to take what we're hearing and apply it. And this is the whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Plain, that we would not just be hearers of the Word, but we would apply it. So I pray this morning as you hear this message, we'll take into and digest and meditate upon what the Spirit of God is saying through the Word of God and then we might apply 
the Word of God. Jesus has come off of the mountain. He's been praying. He's been along communing with God the Father. And He comes down and He chooses the twelve apostles. We talked about that last time. And we went through each apostle and kind of took a, a glimpse at their life and their death. And so these twelve have been chosen. Remember the scene now. Put yourself in the context. Here's uh, uh, the scripture says, look there in, in Luke, and we're just kind of backtracking just a bit. It says that um, uh, when he came down, he chose those twelve. It says he came down with them, verse 17, and stood on a level place. Level place. There's the plain with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. So that's where we're at. That's the scene. Here's Christ after all night praying. A turning point in his ministry. The cross is now in sight. He knows he's not going to be here much longer, therefore he is going to choose those 12 apostles so that the work will continue and the work has continued and that's why you're here this morning and praise God the work shall continue because the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church and we are commissioned to continue sharing the gospel of Christ. And so here's Jesus in the midst of these, this multitude of people and they were healed of their sicknesses. And some had demons cast out of them. I mean, this, can you imagine what's going on in this scene? Remember, we talked last time, there's probably over a hundred plus disciples at this point. And now you factor in all the other people who've come out because those that were demon possessed obviously weren't disciples. So now they've been set free. Some of these people who were probably sick may have not been followers. Those people who came out, there may have been those who were curious. We also know the Pharisees have been following them around. So picture this scene, this multitude of people to hear this teaching. And So now we find Christ, and we'll begin our text this morning. And we're only going to take a small bite of this, but please keep the full context. This is one of the tough things. When you're going through a, a big section of Scripture, sometimes, I, you know, it's all I can do to, to cram as much in in the two hours I have you this morning. Oh. And, and so we're going to just kind of take a little small segment this morning. But remember the big picture. So I encourage you to go home and read the big picture here. Keep the context. But let's take a look today in verses 20 through 26. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed. Are you poor? For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you 
And when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full. For you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would allow me to be used this morning. Help me just to be a clean vessel, Lord, that you would allow your grace to flow through me as I proclaim your word. Lord, help me to speak as the oracles of God. Help me to proclaim your truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, help our minds to be attentive our hearts to be in tune, help us to have ears to hear. And Lord, we ask that you meet with us and you speak with us. Make your truth known and help us to hear it and heed it. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a comparison, as I mention often, between this and the Sermon of the Mount. But there's one thing that does appear here in the Sermon on the Plain, as we'll refer to it, that's not found in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the four woes that were just mentioned. The four woes that we just read. And so I want to kind of use this uh, this morning because here's what Christ did in this message. He did a comparison. He did a contrast. And so I want to contrast the four blessings against the four woes. So if you're taking notes, you'd like to take notes... That may be how you want to break it down. I'm going to give you point one. We're going to look at a blessing, and then we're going to compare it and contrast it to the curse because they both apply here in this teaching. For example, point one, the poor, as found in verse 20, compared to the rich in verse 24. Notice, as he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and he said, Blessed are you poor. Blessed are you poor. Now, he's not just speaking of physically poor. Now, some people have tried to hijack this and say, oh, here's the social gospel, and they kind of make a a springboard. Now, look, that's not that he's not necessarily referring to those who were poor and, and in poverty. Sure he was. There were many of those that were there. But that's not the emphasis of his teaching. And we find this, if you look over in Matthew 5, 3, in the Sermon of the Mount, he says the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. In fact, this word poor here, Jesus uses the more severe term for poverty. In the Greek language, He uses a word here that indicates someone who must beg for whatever they have or will get. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? Maybe not, especially uh, not in this country, probably in regards to uh, a need. Now, I'm sure we've seen a kid throw a temper tantrum and beg for something that was more of a want. But imagine what's being described here in this word. It indicates someone who must beg for whatever they have or will get. Poverty of spirit 
and this is important to note, poverty of spirit is not something you can just drum up. It's not something that you you read this text and you say, you know what, I need to have poverty of spirit, okay. Uh, Let me work this up here. How do I get poverty of spirit? Many people misunderstood this, and this is why you have movements such as monasteries and monks and people who ostracize themselves. They say, well, hey, you know what? Maybe if I isolate myself from the world, I cut off everything that this world and its worldly goods, that's what Jesus was teaching. And many people went that route. And there are still some super spiritual people today that think that somehow if they just deny themselves and make themselves poor physically, that somehow that helps them to be what Jesus referred to here as blessed are the poor. But they miss the point. David Guzik said poverty of spirit is placed first here in this for a reason. Because it puts the following commands, everything that follows after this, it puts it into perspective. They cannot be fulfilled in our own strength, but only a beggar's reliance on God's power. Let me say that again. They cannot be fulfilled fulfilled in our own strength, but only by a beggar's reliance on God's power. You see, when I get to a place to where I'm so broken and I'm so surrendered, when I get to a place where I cannot go on in my own strength and I say, God, help me, God, forgive me, I begin to beg in that type of brokenness. And many of us know what that is like. That's what he's referring to. That's the place we have to begin. We have to come to the Lord in a sense of brokenness, in a sense of poverty. Because I recognize and I realize, apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from His grace, I am nothing. I'm still dead in my sin. I desperately am poor. And I'm begging for the grace of God. Jesus is referring to this. I think he looks at his disciples because his disciples got this or were getting this. Hence the reason they were following him. Many of them giving up things. Yes, this is true. But they recognize their need. Compare this to the rich man. Notice over in verse 24, the rich man, he says in, in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. He says here, the blessed man is the poor man. But woe to the rich. Now think about the culture. Think about what's going on in this time. The religious leaders. They were the rich, right? I mean, they were the wealth. They, you talk about pomps and circumstances. They, they, these guys had on the robes. They, they, were, they were decked out. And there was a common understanding that if you had wealth, you were somebody. You must have favor with God because you're blessed. That was the world's understanding. And if you were poor, and you were sick, and you were diseased, and you were, you know, then you must have God's judgment upon you. And this was the mentality. And that's why when Jesus shows up on the scene, and He begins to teach what's found here, 
This is radical. You talk about upsetting the apple cart. You talk about shaking people to the core. This, this was shocking. Here are all these religious, and I'm sure some were there in their fancy wardrobes, and here's these half-covered, poor, poverty-stricken people who some who have just been set free from demon possession, some who had sickness who were just healed, and now Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor. Woe to the rich. Yes, he was using the physical things around him to point out a spiritual truth. And this must have struck at the heart of many. You know, it reminds me, uh, Luke will talk about this and we'll get into more detail on it, but you'll remember, um, I, I've preached it here. In fact, I think it might have been my first sermon I ever preached here, Luke 18, in regards to the rich young ruler. Luke 18, uh, it tells us the story of a certain ruler who came to Jesus and said, Good teacher. Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? There's only one good. Remember, he wanted to know, How do I get eternal life? How do I get eternal life? Jesus' response was, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, hey, all these things I've done from my youth, I've done that since I was a kid. He thought he was okay in his own eyes. This guy was a religious. He was a, he was a, a religious leader. If you, He was a rich man. He said, all these things I've kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus was asking him to take up his cross. But when he heard this, he was very sorrowful for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that, he became very sorrowful. He said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, these things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Here was this rich young ruler who actually wanted to know. How do, I get in, how do I get eternal life? How can I be saved? How can I be forgiven of my sin? And Jesus hit him in the heart. Because, see, his treasure was where his heart was. And we're taught this in Scripture, that where your treasure is, what you value in your life, what you think is a number one priority in your life, that is exactly where your heart is. God is the only one who deserves preeminence. He is the only one that should have and hold first place in our life, in our heart. Is He your treasure this morning? Do we treasure Him? Is He precious to us? Have we come to a point to where we're so broken, we're so poor in spirit, that when we cling to Him and call out to Him, He is our everything? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Woe to the rich. Second point I want to hit on this morning, the hungry compared to those who are full. 
Jesus says, those who are hungry. Notice in verse 21. Blessed are those, blessed are you who hunger now. For you shall be filled. Blessed are you who hunger now. For you shall be filled. But compare that to those who are full over in 25. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Well, the hungry. Again, comparatively speaking, the message that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount, 5-6 of Matthew says this, and this is the New American Standard Bible, quotes it this way, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Are you satisfied this morning? Are you satisfied? If you're sitting here today and you're not satisfied in your spirit, if you're not satisfied in your soul, perhaps it's because you're not hungry. Perhaps you're not thirsty for the person of Christ. I would imagine there's a part of all of us that longs who want to be right with God, that longs to have that relationship, to have that special closeness. I'm, I'm sure there are some here today that, that longed for that. Will you hear these words again? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, Christ is offering the kingdom of God. He is preaching the message. He is preaching the gospel. He wants people to know that there's an answer. He compares this to those who are full. Woe to you who are full. You know, there's a lot of people in this life that are Hey, I'm content, man. I'm happy. I'm good. I'm good to go. You know, things are going well in my life. I've got a good job. I've got a good wife. I've got a good family. Things are hunky-dory. Things are rolling right along. I'm good, you know. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a student. I'm, you know, hey, I'm, things are fine. I, I'm, you know, I'm doing well in school. Everything's just happy, happy, happy. I know I need a longer beard to say that, don't I? Mike, can I borrow you? <laughs> but... The problem is, for a lot of people, that very well may be the case now, but that's temporal. That's a temporal happiness. The word bless, it's translated sometimes as happy. Happy is the man. Dustin read Psalm 1. Happy is the man, blessed is the man. But... There's more to it than the way we understand the word today. We talked about last week how important it is to define words, that we got a proper understanding of words. As Christians, we don't want just happiness. Not in today's definition. Okay, happiness, we've said this many times, you've heard me say it. Um, I think I heard MacArthur say it first. Happiness is based on happenings. And as long as things are happening in your life that are A-OK, we're good. But let your circumstance change, let your uh, happenings change, and your happiness will go away. That's emotional. 
And you know what that looks like? King's Dominion. Some of you that went the other week and rode the roller coasters. Or maybe the van. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. Which is still in Rocky Mount. We're getting it Lord willing this week, I hope. So, we don't want to be people who are controlled by our happenings. And as long as everything's going good in your life, you're okay. But let some storms come in, let some trials come in, let some emotional turmoil enter into our heart, thoughts, and minds, and all of a sudden we fall apart. And this is, the, again, the context of this message. The storms come in. We're going to get to this in, in days ahead, Lord willing, where the storms come in, and those who've not built their house upon the rock, they build it upon the sand. Guess what happens? It crumbles. And some of our lives, because we're basing them on our happenings, your life is going to crumble. And there were many in Jesus' day that were there listening to Jesus' message here in the context, and they thought they were okay. They were like the rich young ruler. Hey, I've done that. In their own eyes, they were okay. But they lacked one thing. The heart did not belong to God. And there are some here today, there are some listening via the radio, and if the truth be known, they may be somewhat semi-happy in the world standard, but the truth is God does not have your heart. Christ does not have your life. He is not preeminent. And when a storm comes, great is the fall. Hear the message that Christ proclaimed. Hear the truth that He's sharing in these words. Perhaps you're hungry. You're thirsty for righteousness. There's only one source that satisfies. And it's not in, it's not in the temporal things of this world. I'm reminded when I read this um, of the rich man and Lazarus. You can turn over there if you want, Luke 16. You remember this story. Luke 16. And you find in verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Seems pretty rich, doesn't he? Pretty hungry. I mean, he was pretty full. He wasn't too hungry, but there is one here who is hungry. Notice what happens. But there was a certain beggar. certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted 
and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And folks, one did rise from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And those Jewish people of Jesus' days, many of those that were gathered there, there were many that were rich, like this rich man in this text, that were the religious leaders of the day, and they knew Jesus rose from the dead, but they still didn't hear it. They had the prophets of old, and they still didn't hear it. They had Moses' law, and they still didn't hear it. And yet many of us come to churches, and you hear time after time the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet you still don't truly hear it. The third contrast that Jesus gives here in this sermon is those who weep compared to those who laugh. Those who weep, verse 21, those who mourn. Notice there the second part of of that Luke 21 passage. Luke 6. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Compare that to those in verse 25. Woe! To you who laugh now, the second part. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You know, I'm sure there are many of you that are here this morning and you have some serious burdens. And you are probably in a situation, you're going through things that nobody in this room can relate to. And nobody knows. Nobody understands exactly the pain you're feeling. Nobody can, in this room can relate to what you're dealing with. But there's one who can. And he hears and he knows. Well, what, what, what is, did, you, did you reflect on the song we sang this morning? He knows my name. Every tear that falls... And He hears you when, when, when you call. Guys, this is our God. This is the one. This is Christ delivering this message. And there are people there who are hurting. There are people there who were sick. There are people there who were just healed. And, and, and there are many of you that are here this morning. And you may be sick and physically. There may be emotional sickness. There may be pains and trials and tribulations and things that you're dealing with and you're carrying right now. But you know what? Don't carry them alone because there's one who hears when you call. And He's telling you, blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who weep. You say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound too... I mean, you know, I don't think I want to be blessed anymore. (laughs) Because this is hurting. This is hard. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart 
and save such as have a contrite spirit. I don't know about you. But when God's near, that's a special place to be, isn't it? No, we don't like the pain and the trials. We don't like that. But you know what? Where would we be without them? I don't know about you, but I'm going to be real with you. Without them, I'd probably be way out there away from God. I mean, that's the reality. Sometimes the trials come into our life and they, are, they happen to us so that we might grow and learn and become stronger. And it helps us, because I don't know about you, but when trials are in my life, I have a tendency to really cry out to God a lot more. I have a tendency to look more to Him. To become more dependent upon Him and less upon myself. But when things are going well and happy, 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 are we? We don't really, we don't really do that as much as we should. Now, for those of us who are in those moments, let us be mindful in those moments to praise His name, to thank Him during these times of blessing, in the times where things maybe are going well. Because we're promised in Scripture, if we choose to live righteous lives, we will suffer. And we shouldn't count it strange when it happens. You know, even Jesus, when He was here, In his, in his physical emotion, he, look, he wept. Jesus wept. Shortest verse. Some of you have committed that to memory, I hope. Scripture memory of the week. <laughs> Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. Remember, Lazarus has died. His friend. Jesus knows. For some of you who've lost loved ones, he knows. He knows. He knows what you're feeling. You know that Matthew parallel in Matthew in 5, and you don't have to turn now, but I'll read it. Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I don't know what you're enduring, I don't know what you're going through, but let it have its way and its work in your life because it will produce character. But more importantly, in the end, you will have comfort. What about those who laugh now? You know, it's easy to look at the world and, man, they just seem to be having all the fun, don't they? They're just living it up, you know? He said, woe to those. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew uh, 13. Matthew 13. Look in verse uh, 41. 
Matthew 13, 41. Again, this is a parable of the tares being explained in time scenario. But you notice, the Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, verse 42, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be welling and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but there is no amount of laughter, excitement, fun in the sun that would want me to pursue when I know that's the end. I mean, what sin is so enjoyable, what sin, what lifestyle is so pleasurable that you're willing to take that temporarily and exchange it for eternity for that? I mean, really, we are being deceived by the little g-god of this world that the fun is now, that this is where you need to get your full on, right here, right now, get the gusto, don't worry about what tomorrow may hold. But let me remind you folks, that's what tomorrow holds for people who step out of this world into eternity without Christ. And that's our family. That's our friends. That's the coworker. That's the neighbor. And we know the answer. We know the cure, that the thing that prevents them from arriving at that destination. Christ stands in the midst of this multitude that's come out to hear Him teach, and they've seen His miracles. They know of what He's done. And yet it still, even to this day, falls on deaf ears. You know, the Lord's going to actually have the last laugh. Do you know that's in Scripture? Look over in um, Proverbs chapter 1. This is, this is text, folks. This is Scripture. Yeah, the Lord's going to laugh. There's folks laughing now, living it up, scoffing and, you know. But look in uh, Proverbs 1 and look in verse 24, what happens in the end. Because I've called you, because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me. But I will not answer. Wow. They will seek me diligently but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. 
but whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. I mean, gang, this is an important call. This is an important cry. And Jesus is standing on the Sermon on the Plain and He's offering this to the folks. To be either blessed or to be cursed. And for some of you, He's offering this very morning salvation to either be a blessed man or to be a cursed man. Notice fourth and final point. Those reviled or hated compared to those spoken well of or the popular. Verse 26. Look in in Luke 6.22. We see the reviled. Rejoice in that... um, Actually, blessed are you when men hate you. Verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Hated, detested. You know, John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. John 16, 2, They will put you out of synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And we know after Jesus' departure, there were many. And through the halls of of time up to this very day, there are still people around the world that are being slayed, that are being killed. And people think they're doing God's work when they do it. Guys, don't let the news indoctrinate you. At the core of the Islam faith, radical Islam, jihad is a holy war. They think they do God's work in killing the infidel. This is fulfillment of the very words Christ spoke. This is the very fulfillment of the Scriptures as we see in Isaiah. Isaiah 50, 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in a crazy day. I never thought I would see this in my life. Think about what's going on in our own America. What's being called good. Think about the social issues that are hitting all around us. And that's being deemed as morality, as good. And those of you who stand in opposition, you're haters. Blessed are those who are hated. When you are hated, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they cast out your name as evil, you Christians. How about the popular, verse 26? Notice the popular. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers 
to the false prophets. I mean, you know, hey, there were, there were guys teaching even in Jesus' day that had a following and were well-known and popular. They had their Joel Steens of their day. Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. I, I should have said T.D. Jakes. Oh, I'm England. I'm meddling now. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll change it to Kenneth Copeland. I can keep going. I can name a bunch. And maybe I'll hit some of us that are listening to these false prophets. I don't mind saying it, guys. Jesus names, God names, Paul names, everybody names in Scripture. But boy, you get in trouble if you name a name from the pulpit. I don't understand that. You read John? Diotrephes. How'd you like to be Diotrephes? Well, we've got some of those in churches around the world today too, don't we? I think we'd probably be better off if we did do some naming. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm meddling. I'll move on. But we don't have any here, by the way. Praise God. I better clear that up. If you're listening on the radio, we do not have any. Please come here, uh, unless you're diatrophies. <laughs> so anyway, you're not welcome. <laughs> you know, so. All right. But what about the popular? Think about James, what he said. James said it, James 4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I mean, this is black and white. You want to be Mr. Popular, Miss Popular? You want to fall to the peer pressure? You want to do what the world says you need to do? Go ahead and make yourself an enemy of God. See how far that gets you. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end's destruction. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And that's what's happening. There's a lot of popular pastors out there that have mega followings. And they're teaching fables. They're not teaching sound doctrine. They're not teaching the truth of God's Word. They're not telling people that unless they repent and, and put their faith in Christ alone for salvation, there's an eternal hell awaiting. They're not telling that message. They just want to smile and just blink and, and just God loves you and He just... I tell you, just the other day I was... So amazed by God's love. Sorry, that was a pretty good impression, wasn't it? You, anyway, it's the hair, I know. I'm just saying. <laughs> and look, gang, God is love, yes. I'm not negating the truth of the Scripture in that. But, but open our eyes. And that's what Jesus was doing here, opening the eyes of the people. John the Baptist was opening the eyes of the people. And that's why they were leaving the religious uh, synagogues and gatherings to go out into the wilderness to hear His message. It was a hard message. 
It was a straightforward message. Jesus' message right here, we, we, we kind of see it in our context today and we don't get the full effect. But gang, transport yourself into that day. This was a radical message. This was hard hitting. And the religious good people of the day got their toes stepped all over. I better close. Turn over to Luke 18. Luke 18. And look in verse 10. If you would, please. Luke 18, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One... A Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. And you know all about tax collectors. We had a sermon on that one all by itself. So here's this Pharisee and this tax collector. They go up to the temple to pray. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's your parallel. There's your Sermon on the Mount. There's your sermon on the plane. There's your contrast. You know, in Matthew 6, 24 to 26, Jesus said the following, that Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Let me ask you a question. Which will you be? Which will you be? The Pharisee? The tax collector? The blessed man, the cursed man. Do you understand the cost of being a disciple of Christ? What about you Christians who are suffering? Maybe you're in the midst of suffering right now. I want to encourage you, take the attitude of Peter and John in Acts. 541, so they departed from the presence of the council after being beaten 
rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Or how about Paul as an example? In Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. What about the example of Christ Himself? Hebrews 12.2 Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, Jesus said in that Luke 6, verse 23, Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. Gang, we got examples from Christ, Peter, John, Paul, others who've gone on before. And if you're in the midst of suffering, be encouraged with these words. And what, a, what, a, what an honor. If you know Christ and you're suffering for His namesake, now that's the question you've got to answer. Are you suffering for His namesake or are you suffering because you've got sin in your life? Big difference. We all like to plead the Job concept, but it don't always apply. But if you're surrendered, you're a follower of Christ, you're facing opposition and persecution or suffering, you're in the midst of a trial, you're hurting, can I just encourage you today? He knows your name. And He knows every tear that falls. And He does hear you when you call. Let's pray.